Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Welcome to The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Will Kelleher and you're listening to our special series examining just what it takes to win the Rugby World Cup in the company of those who have been there and done it. We'll take you from 1987 to 2019 through the eyes of great world champions ahead of the 10th World Cup in France this autumn. We'll hear their memories and stories, anecdotes and insights, all with the goal of answering one simple but devilish question. How do you win the World Cup? So join us on a rugby journey to whet your appetite for France with Legends of the Game. This time on How to Win the World Cup, it's time to celebrate England's happy and glorious triumph in 2003. 20 years ago, Beyonce is crazy in love with Finding Nemo in cinemas as Roman Abramovich buys Chelsea and Concord takes its final flight. England clinch a Six Nations Grand Slam by crushing Ireland in Dublin, then puff their chests out down south, beating New Zealand in Wellington and Australia in Melbourne to confirm their status as the world's number one rugby team under Clive Woodward. Come the World Cup in Australia, they're favoured, maybe even expected to win, and, well, you know the story. From Jason Robinson whizzing away to John O'Belting blokes to Johnny dropping the goal in extra time against the Wallabies, England are World Cup winners for the first time. Now, this episode is going to be a little different as we have two guests who've written a book together about it all 20 years on. First, in the stands for the Times was our man Owen Slott, and of course, on the field for it all was number eight, Lawrence Delalio. So, from the Times and the Sunday Times, this is a Ruck special, How to Win the World Cup with Lawrence Delalio and Owen Slott. So, Lawrence, great to have you back on the Ruck. You and Slotty, the prodigal sons of the Ruck, returning. (laughs) We've got to start with Lawrence first, clearly. So, it's a question we're asking everyone um, on the series. Lawrence Delalio, how do you win the World Cup? Is it as easy as that? (laughs) <laughs> with great difficulty Owen. <laughs> first of all it's great to be home again I feel like I've um, it feels like a, a World Cup ago that I was uh, on the pod but uh, no with great difficulty took us um, a long time to win it and uh, on the basis that England 
haven't won one since. I think it shows how difficult it is to win a World Cup. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, we'll try and find a, a sort of definitive answer of sorts by the end of our chat. But let's explain, let's add some context to why you're both here. Uh, we might have had you on because we're all friends, but Slotty, you and Lawrence have written a book about 2003 it's called Boys of Winter, out in all good book- bookshops and all that. There's your plug. So tell us about the, the book, the format of it and the story you're trying to tell 20 years on. Yeah, thanks, Will. It's been a, a really interesting, fun and time-exhaustive journey that Lawrence and I did. So I was uh, I was in the press tribune for the 2003 World Cup final for, for the whole of the World Cup. So I sat there and wrote about it and thought I had one the sort of one of the best seats in the house. And now 20 years on, I've got had an even better uh, viewpoint of it, if you like, because Lawrence and I effectively done a, a road trip and we've gone back round the squad of 2003 plus their coaches, gone and visited most of them. And we've been retelling the story, but the way people look at what happened 20 years ago with the benefit of 20 years hindsight shed so much new light on what we thought we knew what people said at the time what they were how they felt at the time people felt things at the time that didn't feel free to express they probably didn't even know if that that's actually what was you know what what was going through their minds and then and then there's been a lot of what happened to them since and what happens to you when you're a world cup winner and what happens in your next life so it's been a long road trip as we've been calling it because most of it was done on the road and it's really fascinating and um uh, hopefully the book will go down um and and, uh, and exemplify all that so lawrence obviously when you're part of a team like that you you tend to get to know everyone pretty well but what were the bits that on this road trip that you've uncovered that you thought oh, god i wish i knew that at the time i have no idea that's how you felt well i mean first of all as owen said it's the first part of the book talks about the incredible nine weeks that we had in Australia, culminating in that night in Sydney. And when you leave that dressing room after a World Cup final, it'd be interesting to see what the other guys who you have on the podcast say, but your world is never the same again, you know. And so the second part of the book interrogates with far more curiosity the two really interesting questions, which is, do you think it was a good thing that we won the World Cup? And how has it changed your life? For those who don't know, That was Martin Johnson's last ever game of rugby for England, along with quite a few of our colleagues. Johnny Wilkinson, the the winner of the World Cup with his drop goal, didn't actually play for England for another three and a half years after that final. Some of us were playing again the following week, and I was delighted to be playing again the following week after I'd sobered up, obviously. (laughs) But uh, I guess we haven't got together as a group. Uh, We got together once in 20 years since uh, that famous night in Sydney, and we will get together again in November. And that's no bad thing, but it's, it was just fascinating, really, to to go around, to, to see everyone, um, to speak to everyone. You know, Martin Johnson obviously has been through an awful lot in that time. Amazing player, amazing captain. You know, was England coach for a while, probably quite successfully when you look back at previous England coaches in recent years. <laughs> and, you know, you could hardly get a word out of him when he played, but, you know, you couldn't really shut him up. And, and just as well, because he, he has a lot to offer the game. Uh, I thought he was fascinating with his insights uh, and his memory of detail you know his ability to recount things little details that happened in the build-up to some of those games I hadn't realized that when Mike Tyndall was not selected for the semi-final he you know fit of rage went out in Sydney and met his now wife Zara Phillips so Mm, um, there you go a lot of other people have claimed to matchmate those two, but <laughs> we can't give all the credit to Clive Woodward for dropping him. Uh, well, so, yeah, listen, there were some fascinating insights into, you know, more the mental side of the game. Mm. Some of the self-doubt that a lot of the players, I'm sure Owen would concur, some of the private sort of self-doubt and and sort of 
self-belief maybe that certain players had to sort of go through in order to get themselves into the right place to play the game. I, I was going to ask really? this at the end, but I don't know. It's a funny old thing, isn't it? Winning a World Cup, as you said, with the, are, are we happy that we won it? Of course we are, but did it improve your life? And is, is there some tinge of sadness maybe within all the joy, 20 years on, that one... I don't know, you never played again. There's, there's sadness around Steve Thompson and what's happened to him since with his dementia diagnosis. There's the fact that the legacy was never really built on England, have not repeated it. Amid all the joy and all the memories that people have got of it around England and beyond, do you look back and you just say, it's not maybe as special as it could have been? Well, there's two parts to that question, isn't there? The first part is um, I've lost count the number of people that said to me, shake your hand in the street and just say, thank you for giving us the greatest morning of our lives. You know, I mean, in terms of sporting lives, I'm assuming, after their marriage and their birth of their children, people that came up to you and said, I was there, I was in the stadium. And it, and it is an I was there moment. And if you look at England are the only nation in the world to have won a football, cricket and rugby World Cup, uh, but all three have gone to extra time. So yeah. there is this kind of script that English teams like to write around making it as dramatic as possible. And, and, you know, I'm one of these patriotic people that don't dine out on the fact that England haven't won a World Cup in 20 years. I would be delighted, having been in a World Cup final the following World Cup and seen a group of players which I was involved in lose a World Cup final as well as win one. You know, that is the polar opposites of, of sport. You know, it's love, it's hate, it's win or lose. And the feelings I've had, I'd love to share with other people. So we've had we've been in two finals since then and we haven't managed to close them out. I'd love nothing better. But the legacy of 2003 is a strange one because there's so much intellectual property, so much rugby intelligence within that group. And yet only two or three of them really are involved in what I call frontline rugby coaching now, yeah. which uh, is a great shame, really. Slotty, you write about loads of different sports. Is that, I don't know, a constant theme across champions that it's maybe not as glorious as we all think? One of the um, really interesting things about going through the whole squad again is how happily it sits with them. Because by definition, th these are, you know, not just high performers, but weirdly high performers. These are the highest of the high. And many of them who, who can't let that go, not, for, not surprisingly, it's in their d DNA. So they, they kind of want to go out and, and do it again, if that's in coaching or another walk of life. I mean, um, Josh Lucy is the one that sort of comes to mind. He was in the army. He's a trained lawyer. He's he's worked in finance. He's won a World Cup, and now he now he's in in the Far East, sort of uh, uh, running private equity houses and this eternal drive. So he feels very comfortable with what he's done. So, some of them uh, have tried to come to terms with the fact that that was the the peak of that was their Everest, and and that their lives will never find that high again. I mean, we we had this fascinating chat with. Trevor Woodman, who was literally talking his way through that sort of recognition that that was the high and he got injured quite quickly after the World Cup. And he said so many times, I only got 22 caps and only was the, was the word that he would use mm. all the time. And Lawrence would go, mate, you, you won the World Cup. But he said, yeah, but it wasn't quite enough. I, I only got 22. I wanted more. So so he wanted to, wanted to stay up on that high again or find an equivalent. And then some people you, you would find were just so blissfully at ease with what they'd done and and i would i would say that the player most comfortable within with themselves you know in the time we met him was martin johnson who you would say was the sort of the ultimate driving force but he just comes over so relaxed and happy with where he is he's, he's not you know he's been the england coach so he has had a go at uh reaching the the, the pinnacle again 
but 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 now he's just made he he's so at peace with himself and he goes I'm just really happy with with life the way it is. I, I've had that experience and I don't need to go there again. Yeah. What about the guys around the sides of the team? Because at all World Cups, there's not just the management of the people actually playing and winning it, but it's the, the people on the fringes, isn't it? We were talking yeah. before we recorded and the different stories of those guys who maybe didn't quite feel part of it as well, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, that, that, there's inevitably, you know, I think we were very quick to endorse that when it underpinned our culture, really, that none of us is as good as all of us, really. And the success of the frontline players was was uh, was purely not just down to themselves and their own drive, but down to the competition that existed within the group. You know, that drove us all the way over the line to the final. I mean, I reflect back and through, not deliberately, but I ended up with this rather nicely sounding statistic that I played every minute of every game in a World Cup, which I'm not sure any player would do these days Mm. um, because of the fact that you have different roles for substitutions. But on one extreme, I played in every minute. But as you say, there were players that maybe played one game, two games, maybe a piece in every game. Like Julian White, for instance, was a prop who played over 51 times for England, yet he wanted to be Trevor Woodman. He'd rather play 20 times and played in the World Cup. Or he'd have probably played 50 times and wanted more than just two games in a World Cup. Whereas Trevor Woodman played 22 times, but actually wanted to be Julian White. So it's quite interesting, isn't it, to see where people sit within the hierarchy. Some were happy to be there. Some were wanted more and felt that they their quality as players deserved more game time. And there were there were others that were lucky enough to be out there. So uh, it's a really interesting uh, question you ask. Well, this this is one of the the things that I found really fascinating and and really engaging to be inside of. So, just for instance, our conversation with Kieran Bracken, who you just feel was was so integral to that team and that and that victory, but he didn't get on for a minute of the World Cup final. And when you talk to him about it seriously, he says twenty years on, he still regrets that. Twenty years on, he still doesn't really feel like a World Cup winner. Uh, and Lawrence, it's so much in Lawrence's personality that he wants everyone, you know, we're all in this together. Come on, we're all in this. And uh, and Lawrence, I think it's fair to say you're pretty surprised by that because you yeah. felt that he was so such a big player. He had a huge role in the South Africa game. You don't think that he was on the sideline at all. But and Lawrence would say, come on, Kieran, you know, we you were integral you were in that South Africa game that was arguably the most important game of the lot. Of course, you're a World Cup winner. And Kieran going, Lawrence, you just, you just, don't, you just don't know what it's like. I'm, I'm competitive like you. I wasn't in it. Well, I mean, I think scrum halves are, are a Jacqueline and Hyde anyway because one minute they're in favour and they're in, they're in the team, and then the next minute they're dropped. I mean, Matt Dawson and Kieran Bracken probably have as many. I don't know actually, but they probably have as many England caps as each other. Because, Similar, yeah. You know, one week Kieran was flavour of the month, and then the next week Matt Dawson would be, and and. Maybe Kieran, you know, when the music stopped, you know, Matt Dawson was in possession of the shirt. And, you know, I, I just know if, if I asked every single member of the squad, toughest game we had in that World Cup was that South Africa game. Um, the pressure on us going into that pool match, et cetera, et cetera. And Matt Dawson didn't play. I think he got injured the week of the, the game and Kieran did. He was playing against the late and great Jus van der Vestesen, And it, he was undoubtedly the man of the match that day. So, yes, he didn't play in the final. And that is, you know, personally for him, um, you know, not a nice feeling because you feel you're good enough, but we wouldn't have even got to a final without him. Well, let's get into the matches in a second, but let's lay a bit of context, I suppose, to the build-up. So, 99 doesn't go to plan. Yanni De Beers dropped goals. It is That's always the story that's told is that game started formulating this build-the-score, drop-goal plan. And then you've also got the, the 03 Grand Slam finally getting that done 
when for you, Lawrence, did it start building through and saying like, right, it's not just about competing at this World Cup, it's about winning it? Well, I mean, listen, we don't we try not to go delve into it too much in the book, but certainly 97, when Clive Woodward was appointed, was a turning point in English rugby because the first thing he said was, first thing he said was where the New Zealand stay when they come to England and Someone said Penny or Park, and they said, not anymore. You know, his first act was to throw them out the, the the best hotel in the country. So I knew he was quite mischievous even back then. But, <laughs> you know, he 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 was the one, Clive Woodward, and we interviewed him in the book. We you got far more out of his wife than we did out of him, which is, which is quite interesting. You know, what's it like to be with a coach the week of a World Cup final, for instance? But he set the vision of wanting England to win a World Cup. You know, he wanted us all to be household names. He wanted, he, you know, we left that room after the first meeting with a very clear picture in our minds about winning the World Cup. What we didn't know was that it would be the World Cup in six years from, from that day rather than two years. And I think when Clyde was reappointed, that was the point where we really started to build. We knew that we were a good enough team, but we had a lot more hard work ahead of us. And it was a long journey. But uh, I think the turning point, and I probably said it a lot, uh, is around 2000 when we went over to South Africa and we lost the first test match because the TMO lived around the corner. Um, <laughs> literally, it was the first time in world rugby had appointed a TMO. Unfortunately, they didn't realise or think that it would be good to make them independent. So uh, <laughs> this guy lived 45 minutes from the stadium. There was absolutely no way he was going to award the try. Uh, and then we went on to win the second test in uh, in Bloemfontein. And I think for us to have beaten the South Africa in South Africa back then was a big deal. And... That, to me, was the start of our journey of belief into realising that actually we were capable and good enough to win a World Cup. I find that interesting because in the conversation we've been having with people who've played the, the earlier World Cups, it's all a bit seat of the pants and it's all a bit late. And the later ones, it's all about this four-year cycle and some of that narrative helps coaches, doesn't it? Because it keeps them in a job saying, oh, no, it'll all be fine in two years or whatever. But well, yeah, was I mean, it a cycle thing the, for you guys? Yeah, we had the ingredients. I mean, look, if you if you cast your mind back to 1997, when the British and Irish Lions toured South Africa, England provided 18 players on that tour. I think it was 18 out of 34 or 18 mm. out of 35. We came back having defeated the then world champions in their own backyard and, and, and emulated the greats of 74. So I was 24 years old. Martin Johnson wouldn't have been uh, a lot older. There was a lot of very good players on that tour. Richard Hill, Neil Back. You know, the list goes on and on. Paul Grayson, Matt Dawson, you know. So you could almost go back to 97 and say, if you come back from South Africa, having just beaten the world champions and Alliance Tour, surely anything and everything is believable and possible after that. So I think that was quite an interesting moment in everyone's lives. A lot of fun as well, by the way. <laughs> uh, and that kind of pointed us towards the World Cup and thought, well, if we can do that, the All Blacks had only done it in 96, I think. So to, to do that in... Uh, in South Africa allowed us to believe that we, we could win a World Cup. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, I, I suppose for everyone else on the outside of the squad, the moment that maybe hit people between the eyes was when England went down and beat New Zealand in Wellington and beat Australia in Melbourne. Was was that for you as a journalist, Slotty, when you started going, this is serious, the expectation's coming? That was real confirmation of, of the quality of, of the team. It, when that tour was announced, it was considered quite controversial. That I mean, can you imagine the England team now doing that, going to New Zealand and, and then Australia, just, just before the World Cup, you kind of really put your reputation on the line. And, you know, you could, you could come back um, feeling pretty insecure about your chances, but this team came back all the better. You know, famously, they beat the All Blacks with 13 players left on the pitch at the end of the game. Even that, Will, was, was interesting because um, when you hear players talk about that, so Neil Back was the first player to be yellow carded towards the end of that. And when he's talking about that, He's given the yellow card and he says 20 years on, he says, I thought I was going to get into trouble for, for being the one who left the, let the team down. You know, like like as if he was the boy who'd sort of been sent out of class or something. And then he says, by the time he got to his seat, he looked up, he realised he wasn't going to be in trouble at all because someone else had been that yellow card <laughs> and that was Lawrence. Uh, just very, but, just but, very clear that uh, uh, the yellow card was for saving a try. You know, the reality is that there, there are those that, you, that are gratuitous and stupid and there are those that Justin Marshall, thankfully, tore his hamstring uh, on the 22. And uh, and as he got brought down five yards from the line, um, I just killed the ball completely necessarily. Uh, otherwise, they'd have been quite a few ahead. But <laughs> it's uh, it, it was an amazing win. But not only that, which obviously got all the headlines, but our the rest of our squad had gone down to New Plymouth and beaten the New Zealand Marys in in the home of, of, of New Zealand rugby, you know, on the, on the few days preceding that. So I think the strength in depth that we had within our group was um, really underpinned. And of course, the usual rubbish came out in the New Zealand Herald the next day. And then the mind games with Eddie Jones started the following week. And, you know, you can't play any rugby. We didn't play very well in New Zealand, but we just we did enough to win the game. And then we obviously outscored Australia three tries to one in Melbourne. So it was a risk, no doubt about it. But it was we wanted to keep our run against the northern hemisphere, uh, against the southern hemisphere going. I'd never played a test match for England in New Zealand. I've only played one. Uh, well, I only played one up to that point. So I think it was an opportunity for us all to go and do something that we'd never done before. Yeah. So when you actually arrived in Australia for the World Cup, Lawrence, was the expectation among yourselves was to win the tournament? But was it? were you getting that from the Australians that they sort of saw you as a threat or the other countries and they were trying to start the slagging matches early? Well, of course they saw us as a threat. We'd beaten them six times in the lead up to the World Cup. So we were a very real threat and the number one side in the world. We arrived in Perth, actually, and for anyone who's been to Perth, it's almost like a little oasis away from the rest of Australia in the sense that 
you know, you didn't really know that there was a World Cup going on at the time. We checked into the same hotel that we'd been in about two or three months before that. And we kind of very much felt at home. And it took a long time for the World Cup to really get going until the game against South Africa when we, we knew we were at the tournament for sure. So so when did it start building and you thought, right, this is getting really serious? Was it that South Africa one was the one? and Because you had Samoa and Uruguay after that and then the, the, the banana skin, I suppose, with Wales... Well, the tough game was the South African game. It was always going to be, you know, if everyone recalls the, the autumn before the World Cup, we played New Zealand, South Africa, and Australia, New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa in consecutive autumn internationals. And, and we'd beaten South Africa by 50 points. And, you know, Corne Krieger sort of trooped off the field and, and they said, see you in Perth, you know, and, and it was meant exactly like that. So they were the usual abrasive South African side, but let's not forget they were young and they went on to win the World Cup in 2007. That was always going to be a tough game for us. Well, that that um that that South Africa game, Martin Johnson talking about that was interesting. So, so Jono's not one given to hyperbole, really, is he? As, as we well know, but but he said that was the most pressurized game he ever ever experienced in his life going into that, and and he did things that he'd never done before. Like he went down to the stadium the night before to visualize what was what was coming. He talked about his role in covering the space on the edge of the ruck and that and that letting Eusfaster Westhazen go past him was the, the biggest fear in his life. You know, all these things from Jono, who's, who's such a level, level-headed guy. It was really brought at home just how huge that game was. Yeah, I would agree. There was a lot of pressure going into that. As there is whenever you're the number one side, I think the biggest learning I had from the 2003 World Cup is that when you go into a World Cup and everyone is expecting you to win it and you are the number one side and have been for quite some time, give or take the odd defeat that we had, uh, it does create a different pressure on you um, as it will for Ireland this time around. It's not an easy hat to wear. I mean, maybe it is for the All Blacks or the South Africans because they've done it quite f- for quite some time, but it, it definitely creates a different type of pressure. Slotty, you mentioned Johnny there and you were his ghostwriter, writing his column for that World Cup and you've written a book with him and Obviously, he was the golden boy for everyone else and the fans and marry me, Johnny signs everywhere. And But already at that point, did you get the sense that he was a different character and this, this wasn't your sort of usual sporting person to work with? Yeah, we knew that Johnny was pretty extreme um, but before we got there. Um, one of the interesting things about going around and talking to everyone is they, they kind of confirm what people maybe had had thought at the time that I thought at the time but just didn't really understand was that the mental pressure that he was under the anxiety that he was facing in today's game we'd be talk we'd be talking about mental health and he would be a there would be a huge plan laid out to how to look after him but no one really knew what to do they the players just accepted that we're the the best the best in our position in the country and that part of that is dealing with extraordinary pressure Johnny took it, handled it in a way that was different and less comfortable than anyone else um, by a mile. And with 20 years hindsight, so many of the players say, I wish I'd said this to Johnny or I wish we'd done this to, to make it easier for him. They're like parents understanding kids now and going, I, I realise what it was now that that this was a guy that, that was was really carrying a load that was very hard for him to bear. And that, again, part of the book is, how was rugby 20 years ago? Well, that was one of the ways. It was still very much a man's sport. And um, you, you you know, I'm using an old cliche when I say that. And you went at it in that way, in that frame of mind. Yeah, I mean, you, you have to remember that 2003, the game of rugby was only eight years into professionalism. And I would say took a long time for a lot of people to even realise what professionalism actually meant. When I look back and my squad look back on 
some of those training sessions that we did, you, you'd wince now thinking about preparing for a game like that. I mean, it's just, it, it was a very different sport. So Johnny was probably the most intense in terms of his preparations, but there was a lot of players that we spoke to that were holding on to a lot of things that maybe nowadays they'd be much more comfortable talking about. Well, let's um, fast forward on the DVD a little bit. We'll gloss over some of the games, but let, we, let's talk about the final. And, and Slotty, one slightly strange element of it, maybe, all around the referee, Andre Watson. Like We know, we know the stories about the scrummaging and, and Jason Leonard putting his arm around him an extra time, but... There was a note sent to Clive Woodward before that final that was all a bit weird and spooky. Is that right? Yeah, Lawrence actually played quite a significant hand in that because um, uh, it was the week of yes, week of the final. The players' coach was returning from training one afternoon, and they all, they're all getting off the off the coach. And there's a random punter with a bag that he offers to Clive. Clive has has a look at the, look at it and him. And sort of thinks that I should probably just go nowhere near this, and so he so he declines to take it from him. And then, and about a, a couple of minutes later, in in the hotel, Lawrence comes up to Clive, says, "Clive, this bloke asked me to give you this bag, <laughs> um, and in this bag, there's a whole load of coins, and um, and also an, a note that says um, says you you want to watch out for the um, for the refereeing of this uh, of the final. Well, anyway, uh, Clive's never really." got the the refereeing of the final out of his head about whether it was right or wrong and um c- certainly when when you look back on the um when you look back on that final you 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 wonder what the hell was going on <laughs> with the scrum why how how a scrum could be as incredibly dominant as England's were for almost the entirety of that game and yet the the penalty count just going way way against them extraordinary Lawrence what was your memory of that well my memory was that our relationship with the referee probably wasn't a great one before the game, but it sort of deteriorated thereafter, really. You know, you had the best scrummaging side in the world at the time, England, um, who just dismantled the much lauded and vaunted French front row in the uh, in the semi-final against probably the worst tier one nation front row. Um, and as, as Owen said, you know, it wasn't really a contest. And for a South African to not allow a scrum contest is... Uh, is a bit harsh, really. And I think he was ably assisted by his assistant referees. I don't think he gave every decision. But, um, look, you know, there's conspiracy theories, as we've just talked about. There's a deep-rooted hatred of England, particularly from the Southern Hemisphere. They didn't want England to win the World Cup, particularly in their own backyard. But the reality is that as players, I've watched the World Cup final back with Martin Johnson. Referees are referees. You know, you, you can argue about whether the decisions are right or wrong, but whatever we know in rugby is that we've got to accept those decisions and you've got to manage the so the process and the situation. And certainly what none of us did particularly well, including Martin Johnson, was change the picture for the referee. In fact, we probably got louder with our abuse towards him um, and therefore the penalties kept coming. All I can say in conclusion is that the World Cup, thankfully, was won by a player rather than lost by another player. You know, no one would want to be remembered for giving away a penalty that loses a World Cup Everyone was crowding Andre Watson in the dinner afterwards. And, you know, I just said to him, look, it's a tough game out there. Thankfully, someone won the World Cup and we won't remember it for the referee. We'll yeah. remember it for Johnny Wilkinson's amazing drop goal. Let's get on to that then. Where were you for it? Um, probably out in the centres, actually. You know, but the whole process, as you know, has been well well spoken. I mean, we lost in Wembley by a few points to a Wales team because we didn't really know what to do. Mike Cat missed a drop goal in 1999 uh, in the last few minutes of the game and we lost. And I think 
the process that we had, I'd hate to give Wales any credit for anything really, but that they were part of that process for helping us win the World Cup because that whole drop ball routine was was rehearsed and practised and, and the scenario was there. When Elton Flatley levelled the scores, there was very, very clear indications of where we were going. But there's so many different parts to it, weren't there? You know, there was Mike Cat who didn't start the game but made a, a great break. You know, there was uh, the extra few yards from Matt Dawson, which were crucial, really, in the in the ultimate scheme of things. There was the Martin Johnson taking it even further. Um, there was the million-dollar question of whether Andre Watson would have penalised the entire Australian back row for being offside. Um, <laughs> thankfully, it didn't come down to that. You know, it's just a beautiful moment, really. It was a great moment. So when Mike Cat then kicks it out 40 seconds or so later, is that when it properly hit you, Lawrence, that you'd finally done it? Yeah, I mean, I think that, listen, there was an, there was an innate belief in our squad, not least from the senior players, that we were going to win that World Cup. But inevitably, you've got to get everyone to a final. You've got to get fit. You've got, you've got to be there. We'd beaten Australia many, many times. We actually played our worst game of rugby in about three years against Australia in that final. They played their best. And that's probably why it was a little bit closer than it should have been. But uh, we were thrilled. And I, I speak to Owen about this a lot. We talk about it in the book. The best moment, it was a relief, really, is the best feeling. Um, and then when we got back in the changing room, there was just that wonderful feeling of, of winning and, and sharing those experiences and that memory that you cherish forever because I knew that the team would never be the same again after that moment. So mm. it was a great feeling. It's uh, it's one that lives in the annuals of, of England's English sporting history, really. Where does the memory go a bit? W at what point do you get a bit fuzzy about the, the few days afterwards and the celebrations uh, and the jumbo well, jet back and all that? We were, we were the world champions at celebrating well before we <laughs> became the world champions. Let me tell you that now. We, we were well rehearsed at that. I think being in that dressing room, um, you know, there were, there were tears. There was, you know, a lot of happiness, a little bit of sadness because, you know, as we've discovered 20 years later, the minute you leave that dressing room, nothing is ever the same. But we went on the charge for about three or four days, I think, and then were led on a plane home. So uh, was it a good thing we won? Absolutely. Did it change your life? <laughs> Inevitably, it does, and it, and it will continue to do so. Slotty, you would have been a journalist trying to chase around England players for reaction and stuff like that. Was that an absolute nightmare in those few days afterwards, trying to get to someone who was sober enough to talk you through it? They were pretty decent, actually. Yeah. Uh, Clive um, had organised a um, anyone who's around who, who can still stand up should be available to talk to the media <laughs> the next day. And I, I do I do remember it was literally halfway through that that media session that that a police car arrived and um, out got uh, uh, Jason Leonard, Martin Curry, Mike Tyndall, Paul Grayson and Lawrence Delalio, I think. Um, <laughs> none of them had been back to their hotel from the night before. They'd been on the piss in, Kings, in the King's Cross part of, of Sydney, tipped out onto the pavement thinking maybe it's time to go back to their hotel and a, um, a friendly police car dropped by and said, <laughs> do you want us to help you out, boys? And they said yes. And, and then... Um, the policeman said, well, you've got to come back to the station first and sign a few bits and pieces for us and then, then we'll take you back. <laughs> so that was a that was a funny moment. The 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 um no the 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 media relations, funnily enough, after winning a World Cup were quite good. We should, hopefully we will we'll experience that again one day. Yeah, who knows, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean the um, the best experience was obviously the Australian media who, you know, publicly apologized for being, well, whatever they were, insecure idiots and uh, and, and printing some of the garbage that they printed, really. <laughs> um, I mean, nowadays can you imagine? I was 31 when we won the World Cup. A lot of my, a lot of the forwards were maybe one or two years older. I mean, Dad's army, really. I mean, uh, it's, it's, you know, we had, we had people like Tyndall and and Bolshaw and some of these, you know, who were much, much younger. And I think they uh, begrudgingly 
you know, gave us the respect that we probably deserved. So we better sum up and answer the question that we posed at the top. How do you win the World Cup? Is there a formula? How did you guys do it, Lawrence? By a drop goal in extra time. It would have been a lot easier if it was done and dusted by half time. Let me tell you that. Yeah. It's, it's such a... I mean, to play the host nation in their own backyard was the dream scenario, really. So that in itself tells you everything you, you need to know, really. It was... Um, it was a journey. Jason Robinson probably sums it up the best. We all arrived at the same place, you know, the World Cup final, but our journey there was very, very different. And I think that is quite fair to say that, really. It was a long journey, long process, but certainly a worthwhile one. Absolutely. Well, I, th- I think part part of the answer, Will, that we touch on, on a bit in the book is, as discussed, it was only eight years into professionalism. And part of the the interest in high performance for that World Cup was, who who had understood and perfected or got got the most out of what professionalism offered for the 2003 World Cup when the game went professional in two, in in 95 New Zealand were pretty much a professional team anyway South Africa were were, were get, getting there and uh, and England was uh, was was cozy old amateurism and in the 8 years largely the bit driven by Clive was was when when they sort of put the boosters on, and some people say, "Oh, any any coach should have been able to win with that team." Well, I think I think we debunk that myth a bit in the book. But amongst the many things that 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 got them got them there was the way that they they approached that whole business of what professionalism allowed them. Well, look, great memories from both of you, and anyone who wants to relive it all twenty years on, boys of winter, all good bookshops. There's plug number two, guys. Well done. <laughs> but look amazing memories Lawrence and like it's lived with you for the rest of your life and it and always will so thank you for talking us through it and also thanks to Slotty for helping you write the book too oh, it's been great thank you for having us on absolute pleasure